This is Steve Thompson, and today we're going to read Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kos. The next day we reached Rhodes and then went on to Patara. There we boarded a ship sailing for Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbor of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. We went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, prayed, and said our farewells. Then we went aboard, and they returned home. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who all had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But he said, Why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. Am I ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus? When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Manasseh, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a de detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. After hearing this, they praised God. And then they said, You know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have, have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, praying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. As for the Gentile believers, they should do what we already told them in a letter. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animal, animals, and from sexual immorality. I want to speak first to this second section where Paul is already in Jerusalem, and then we'll go back to the tail end of his trip, his journey toward Jerusalem. Paul gets to his destination, 
fully aware of what awaited him, but I imagine he couldn't help but shake his head and then facepalm, thinking, with friends and family like this, who needs enemies? He couldn't win. Any explaining would really just get him in deeper water with his Jewish brothers and sisters. So he just finishes sharing how God is moving in absolutely amazing ways, changing people's lives and creating a wave of cultural change, and they all celebrate. But from how Luke tells the story, they no sooner praise and thank God before they turn to a problem. There are a lot of Jewish believers here who think that you're telling Jews everywhere to abandon the law of Moses. See, they thought he was telling them to stop being Jewish. And that simply wasn't true. Because Paul had a missiological bias, sorry, I keep using that word over and over again, but because that was his heart, he would be, and I quote where he says this elsewhere, all things to all people so that by any means he might lead some to Jesus. So yeah, he would definitely embrace the leader's plan for him to demonstrate that he is still a law-abiding Jew. But even while he's going through this purification ritual and getting his head shaved, I'm thinking that he knows this isn't going to work. So I sum up Paul's predicament here in Jerusalem with a short paragraph from N.T. Wright's commentary on the book of Acts. He brings the situation home to today, and I wanted to share it for any of you who could relate to this. You'll have to forgive me because I don't have an awesome British accent like Tom Wright does, but um, he says it like this. Speaking for a moment as a church leader, I take great comfort in Paul's uncomfortable position. It's where we often find ourselves. Zealots to the left of us, zealots to the right of us, zealous and zealots in front of us they volley and thunder their absolute and undoubted truths while those of us who have to find a way through with real people who are struggling to live real lives in loyalty to the real jesus know but realize we simply cannot explain to such people that things are just more complicated than that not because we've made them more complicated or because the gospel itself isn't clear or because we are somehow fatally compromised, but because real life in God's world is complicated, and the gospel must not only address that real life from a distance, but must get down on its hands and knees alongside it and embrace it right there with the love of God. So I'll let that be the commentary on that last part. Um, for those of you who can relate to what Tom Wright articulated is going on there. And now I want to rewind and jump back to the first part of what we read. Again, Paul, uh, not at Jerusalem yet. We have here a continuation of Paul's farewell tour. He's saying goodbye. He's invested his life into these people, these churches he has planted all over the place, and he's risked his life in the process. So now he's on a mission to get to Jerusalem, hopefully in time to celebrate Pentecost there. And every stop along the way, he's saying goodbye to the people with the recognition that he didn't expect to ever see them again on this side of death. Yesterday we read about that and talked about that and how he met up with the Ephesian leaders in Miletus, or Miletus, however you want to pronounce that, 
saying, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And then here again in today's reading, it continues to play out the same way. In Tyre, they find the local believers to hang out with, and they prophesy the same thing, and they interpret what they are seeing and hearing to mean that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. Then, presumably, Philip's four prophetic daughters give him a similar message in Caesarea. And then finally, we have Agabus, a man with the gift of prophecy, and he very graphically demonstrates what Paul would face in Jerusalem. Everyone pleads with Paul not to go. But Paul is convinced that he's been called, he's been told to go. God just wanted him to know exactly what he was facing when he got there. This wouldn't be a surprise. He was heading into the teeth of the wood chipper, fully aware of what was about to happen. For me, this is one of my favorite reminders for people trying to discern God's will for them. Too often, we interpret discomfort or God's apparent lack of blessing or a lack of happiness or opposition as God telling us to move on or to get out of that situation. But that has never really been the pattern of how God speaks. God prepares us for adversity and he asks us to live and possibly die faithfully in the thick of trials and tribulation. And in the book of Revelation, we find out that this faithful witness, this faithful living, which, by the way, um, the Greek word is uh, martyrion, um, where we get the word martyr from, is always the seeds for other people to find Jesus. Paul instinctively knows this. Comfort is not his master. Jesus is. So we shouldn't make the mistake of uh, thinking that Paul's determination to head to Jerusalem is some kind of crazy masochistic martyr complex to pay for his sins of martyring Stephen and and many other early believers. You can read any of Paul's letters and you'll know he wasn't trying to pay for his own sins. He was determined to be faithful to God's directing in his life, no matter what the pain, the cost, or the personal loss. This is a prophetic word to me and <laughs> and I'm always convicted by this and it's a prophetic word to almost everyone in our American culture too comfort is a sweet yet hideous tempter lulling us away from Jesus in change that we gladly surrender to and often don't even see don't make the mistake of interpreting unpleasant circumstances as God's punishment or warning to run. Unpleasant circumstances are a guaranteed reality when we're on the right track, and they just might be an invitation for us to press into it and to live faithfully as a representative of Jesus, following our Master into the ways and into the path that he went. Dad in heaven, you know how much we love our comforts. 
we admit that we become oblivious to so many physical realities, let alone spiritual realities, when we get locked into following our appetites, our cravings, or whatever makes us happy. In your mercy, would you please free us from the pursuit of comfort? Give us a deep-seated hunger and a a craving for pursuing you wherever that might lead us. Give us hearts that break for what breaks yours. And then give us the courage to sacrifice and surrender anything and everything that would keep us from running after you, from running after your kingdom, and from seeing your kingdom become a reality in our world. God, it's going to take you. It can only be you if this is going to play out in our lives too. So Father, we put our lives, we put this day in your hands. We give it to you. In Jesus.